Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bakarvanu mikol hamim, venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-torah. Amen. Baruch Hashem Adonai. Welcome to the Shoftim GT, the Geula Talk. This week uh, is pretty much like laying down the law. Pun intended because Parsha Show Team is all about judges, officers, advisors, get you sums, and Kohanim and the king, and so many more uh, places of authority, namely why rabbis and sages and Sanhedrin, which is kind of synonymous with sages, because Sanhedrin, if you really study their qualifications, they are the get you some of get you some. Um, so not just anybody can be a Sanhedrin and, uh, they are practically, in my opinion, superheroes because, uh, the commentary brings down that they sit with a sword dangling over their head and the pit of Gehenna beneath their chairs. So I'm just going to point out that, uh, if we're going to be following laws that were, Uh, enacted by these kinds of people chances are they uh they did not flippantly make these laws and chances are we should not take them lightly so uh and it's important to note that things like candle lighting uh and all of the different uh rabbinic enactments enactments and things like that that we get fall in line with those same type of people. So, uh, like Mordecai, the Jew, you know, the one from Esther, you know, like Daniel, the one who was the advisor to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, these are called the men of the great assembly, which is, um, you know, technically they're after the Sanhedrin or between Sanhedrins, if you will, because of the destruction of the first temple and the rebuilding of the second temple but we had a sanhedrin in the first temple era anyway and really that's an extension of the uh, the prophets the judges uh the elders uh that were under moshe and yehoshua you know and moshe so there's a whole big drop on that uh that vezra Hashem i will uh share if time permits got a lot of information here this is only the second day of the week, according to this podcast. So first of all, Rosh Hodesh Tov to everyone. We are now in the month of Elul. And as I mentioned on Shabbos, that uh, this is the climax. You know, we're basically rolling right into Rosh Hashanah and the High Holy Days and Sukkot and the time of our joy. So Um, But there's going to be elements of judgment that we need to uh, carefully make our way through. And the best way to uh, approach judgment is with Teshuva. Correct. So uh, I was kind of going back and forth in my head uh, today about whether I should start a new hashtag of some sort just as a... uh, continuation of all the new things that I like to seem to start. You know, there's the get you some, there is now the GT, the the Gula talk, and now I was thinking about being Shuva heroes. So superheroes, Shuva heroes. 
And, um, you know, as crazy as that is, Teshuva is like, it's eternal. You know, it's something that's outside of time and creation. Uh, if you go back to Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, uh, one of the seven things that were created before, before the foundation of creation was Teshuvah. And again, I know I just said it was created before the foundations of creation, to which I want to point out that that same terminology is used sometime for the Mashiach. But when you talk about creation outside of creation, got to just stop for a minute and think that doesn't mean created like what we think, because how do you create outside of creation? So, you know, before passing go, just kind of blue screen on that real quick before, you know, trying to think of things being less than what they are, you know, because sometimes when it comes to thinking about Mashiach existing uh, in eternity, you know, it's just kind of like, well, he can't be created. Okay, well, then the same thing with Teshuva, because that's one of the things that was also revealed before creation. So that is why Teshuva is so incredibly important, because that links us to Mashiach. You know, it is what takes us beyond the parameters, the bounds, the limitations, if you will, of existence and that is teshuva literally teshuva is so great that it overcomes death like in other words before we make teshuva we're under the decree of death which is why it's important that our teshuva is not just like a formality it's not just something we get used to hearing but like have a fresh new expression and a fresh new understanding and grasping of what Teshuvah truly is. So with that being said, if you um, look at Parsha Shoftim, I want to point out that the 10th Bracha of the Shemoneh Esrei, commonly called the Amidah, the standing prayer, i.e. when you stand praying, as Mashiach brought down, that the 10th Bracha of this Seder this order of prayer is the what's called the um, Dean prayer. And it sounds like this Beivrit. Hashiva Shoftenu Kevarishona Veyoad Zenu Kevarchila Veaser Mimenu Yagon Valnacha Umlokalenu Ata Adonai Levarcha Bechesed Uvrachamim Vezarkenu Bamishpat and so in this bracha, we're talking about re restoring and returning our judges as at first and our advisors. And um, in this, there's commentary in the Sidur because, okay, so first of all, our judges, Shoftim, again, this is our Torah portion. This is why I'm really bringing this up because, you know, the Torah is lining this out for us that we should have judges. And currently we don't. We're in exile. We need to fix that. And also we need to be praying Baruch Abba Shem Adonai because Hashem can fix it as well. So may it be soon. So on the commentary about this, when it talks about our advisors, it uses Veyo Zenu, 
which is our advisors are the prophets who gave wise advice in both spiritual and temporal affairs. This is from the Olas Tamid. And also, Hashiva Shoftenu, Restore Our Judges, says when Eliyahu heralds Mashiach's coming, he will first reestablish the Sanhedrin. And then the Geula will begin. A secondary theme of this prayer is the wish that God will help all Jewish judges rule wisely and justly. This is from the Yaros Devash. Now, let's talk about the Sanhedrin real quick because there is currently a Sanhedrin in Eretz Yisrael. Only problem with it is, where is Eliyahu? And there is no Mashiach here, uh, like, actively bringing redemption where we see it manifest. And we also don't see the temple built. And there's so there's a lot of things missing to have this Sanhedrin, supposedly, that's in place. Now, they are doing slaughtering and things like that. And obviously, they're doing it somewhere in proximity to the Temple Mount. And it is not on the altar, and no one has been sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer. So there's a lot going on. That's not to throw shade, as we learned what throwing shade was in um, the red A GT. But that's just to point out, you know, truth over facts. I'm just kidding. I, I, I just, again, I love that truth over facts thing. Uh, it's so silly. Because truth are facts and facts are truth. But, you know, let's just have fun with it. Okay, so anyway, we're all about truth over facts here. So, yeah. So, uh, no, that's not happening uh, in the right place. Nothing is happening in the right way. So, do we really have a Sanhedrin right now? No. I wish we had a Sanhedrin right now. So, let's go ahead and jump down to the Sanhedrin. So... I will uh, drop that in just a moment because I remember it. I want to do an intro first. So to stick with true form to the intro, we got Shof team. We know it's judges. We got, you know, the the qualification and the intensity of these judges because they're the Sanhedrin is an outflow of the Shof team. So. Now, let's go down to where are we in the in the Torah scroll. Uh, one of the things that I took note of on last Shabbat is how much of the Torah scroll has uh, been put or has been rolled on one side. You know, and you think about how we started the year and there was Bereshit and then we got into Parsha Noach and like there was all this Torah uh, rolled up. On the other side of the Eds Chaim, the two bars I hold up to the Torah parchments. And now we're at the uh, the flip side where there's now where the roll was small. Now it's big and where the roll was big is now small. And we see the passage of a year. So we can like see time as we're looking at the rolling of the Torah scroll. And so we can know kind of where we are in the year by the size of how much how much rolled of the Torah is there on either side. So uh, currently right now, if you're 
standing at the bima. Torah is laying down on the bima. The heavier side of the roll is to your right hand. And so we're rolling, we're rolling, we're going towards the left, because, you know, we read from right to left. And all the smaller part of the roll is on the left hand. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's just kind of like, wow, this is crazy. Seeing time through the living Torah, like, is beautiful. So, the other thing about that is if you understand what that means is that you are taking your life and you're on a roll, pun intended, in Hashem. And there's no better way to live life than being rolled up in Hashem. You know, we always talk about being hidden in Messiah. Well, you realize the fact that you spend your existence in the Torah portions, you're hiding in Messiah. So I just think that's like so practical, but so spiritual at the same time, because I always used to wonder, what does it mean to truly be hidden in Messiah and, you know, and things like that. And it's just like, yeah, it's being in the word of God, studying the Torah portions, letting your life go along with the life that Hashem pours out every week through the power show. So we are in the 48th parasha. And so let's go back to the Omer. When we're counting the Omer, we're counting up to 50. Well, we technically, we count to 49 and then Hashem gives us the 50, which is Shavuot. So we don't technically count the 50th day. We count the 49th day. And so what we're on with this parasha, we're like on the 48th Omer. You know, and so you're just kind of looking at this whole point of us approaching this new beginning. And so just for uh, fun, I want to look at uh, what's going to be the 50th parasha. So let's back all the way up. All right. So we got Shof team. So Kitetse, when we go out to war. Is going to be 49, which is fitting because 49 is Memtet. And Memtet is the war Messiah. Then you got Kitavo when you enter into the land, when you come into the land. So that's pretty prophetic because, you know, 50th Parasha has to do with entering into the land. And so many beautiful things that happen on that route. So. The 48th parasha. Uh, and then we have that the fifth parasha of Sefer Devarim. Because remember, Sefer Devarim is treated basically like a, a mini Torah in and of its own. Like if we take the big Torah and hit the Ant-Man button and shrink down to a small man size, that's part that's a uh, Sefer Devarim. So Except for Devarim, we can count the Torah portions in there. So the Parsha Devarim was uh, the first Torah portion of Sefer Devarim. So just kind of one, two, three, four, five. So we're on the fifth one. Now, Ant-Man button again, back to normal size. So what is the fifth Parsha? That's Chaye Sarah. So how do Chaye Sarah and Shoftim all about judges and, and the kingship and 
Cities of Refuge and um, what else we got? We got the the person who's uh, murdered and there was no one to account for the murderer. And you got the the sieging towns like when you go out to war, how you're supposed to preach shalom to the city first before you just go in there. Guns loaded, you know. How do we relate? You know, there's all sorts of stuff about uh, necromancy, sorcery, and things like that. Well, if you go to the KO, which is the Kehurt, the Kehot overview for that Torah portion. I love that if you really get down to the initials, that KO is like the knockout. So even before you start the parasha, you're going to get knocked out because you're in the Kehot Humash. That's literally why I call it the Kehurt Humash, because it hurts. You're just like, I was just trying to study. And then you get assaulted. But anyway, so it says in that overview that Sarah, the mother, entrusted with the responsibility of nurturing Abraham's successor, you know, because of Yitzhak and everything, who is the successor of Abraham and Sarah, because Kaye Sarah, Sarah dies and Abraham also dies. But I continue. It says Abraham. Uh, so she's entrusted with the responsibility of nurturing Abraham's successor. Undertook to insulate the family from deleterious influences. Okay. Insulation from deleterious influences. As soon as Yishmael became just such an influence and Hagar proved unwilling to check his untoward behavior, Sarah insisted that they both be sent away. So here's the beautiful thing about that. So Sarah understands, okay, I got progenitors here and I got successing like seceding our line here, you know, making sure that what Abraham and I started, it's got to continue and we're going to bring in the Jewish people. We're going to bring redemption into the world. Now, we need to give everybody the opportunity to be a part of that, namely represented by Hagar and Yishmael, because Hagar literally means the gear, like the stranger, the possible person for conversion. So just so everyone knows that Judaism is not a closed group, to put it in Facebook terms, or in, um, I guess, Instagram terms. But the admin of this group is Hashem, and he totally is all about letting people come in freely. He has set the permission to join up on request. So if you really want to be a Jew, you get to. You just undergo conversion. You forsake idolatry. And when you get here, don't buck the system. Because you end up being like Hagar and Yishmael if that's what happens. And this does happen quite a bit. So many times that people come to uh, Torah and they want to do it. They want to be Jewish. and Or sometimes they don't even want to be Jewish, but they want to come to Torah, which is kind of weird. But it's cool. We live in the fourth world and this is where God is hidden. So sometimes it's not easy to see. Well, actually, all the time, it's not easy to see Hashem because, again, he's hidden. 
But anyway, you got to look for them. You got to search it out. But I digress. So many times people want to come to Torah or they want to be a Jew or they want to do the Hebrew. You know, they want to get the language or they want to get the dress or they want to eat the challah, you know, because shouts out to the challah. But it's just like, but you don't want to like, you don't want to basically be uh you don't want to be a person of deleterious influence like you don't want to be a person who comes in eats away like pac-man at you know the standards you don't want to eat away at um the culture you don't want to eat away at you know basically the torah like the word of god hashem's principles uh all of our foundations that have been laid because when we have our traditions, they're not just traditions for the sake of being traditions. They are things that safeguard us. Like we don't just light candles every Friday night because Grandma Yehudi did that or great, 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 great Grandma Yehudi did that. No, like this has been something that's a part of our people for a reason that we can actually study, which I encourage, by the way study why we light candles don't just know that we light candles and it's been something that's instituted rabbinically by the sages and something that's just been done in judaism since sarah but you study it and you start to find out more and more and more you get books on it and you find another book about that book that references another book and before you know it you're a couple of years into studying candle lighting and you still haven't really scratch the surface that right there should just let you know something so if you want to come in and you know become a jew or you want to become tour observant or you want to become a lapide and you don't want to light candles that's what's called being deleterious so don't do that because you get sent away not by us baruch hashem because you know we're fallible mankind but hashem will cause it to be so that you just you don't stick you know, it, something's going to happen. So, uh, and that's not a threat. That's just a fact of life. You know, I've been, this is approaching my seventh year. Wow. Of, uh, tour observance, uh, and conversion that, um, I've seen it. I was almost a victim of that. Or uh, actually I was, and I don't know how I came back, but I'm glad I'm here. I've talked about that before. Some of you may be aware of that, but anyway, I say all that to say that you come in and you either join the the insulation that is brought down throughout the history of our people or you try to buck the system and the system bucks back and that's just what happens so and it's not a system like a mundane like oh you're trying to work the the government or something like no it's it's the spirit of Hashem you know if you understand how Mashiach chose his Talmudim. They walked with him and they could either be with him or they could be not with him. And, you know, we've seen that with Yehuda Iscariot. That happened to him. So, all that to say that Hagar and Yishmael, they were unwilling and they were unable to check their untoward behavior. Like, they were just not they were just not glean. They were not uh, connecting. They were not engaging. They were not grabbing a hold of the zitzit, if you will, and so they were sent away.
So this is why some people come in, uh, especially to Sar Shalom. They're there for a little bit and then they're gone. It's just like something is going on to where something hasn't been grabbed a hold of. Something hasn't been engaged. Somebody's upset or something like that. And you have to fight through those things. So I can definitely say that, you know, as Shuva heroes, you have a giant target all over you. It's on your arm. It's on your back. It's on your head, it's on your foot, it's on your heart, it's on your sleeves, okay? Anywhere that you could possibly be impacted, 360 degrees around you, there's a target there. So you will be tested. And so my uh, encouragement and advice, Sleeka, is that everyone would incite their Yetzer Tov to fight. Uh, that has been one of the most powerful things uh, that I've ever heard in my entire life. Brought down by Parasha Baby uh, Pela over here because this is his tour portion. So, Mazal Tov to Ish Pela, a Yom Yom Huledet sometime this week. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And um, he brought that down from Shimras Halashon by the Chafetz Chaim that. We must incite our Yetzer Tov to fight. Because if not, our Yetzahara is going to wipe the floor with us. And it's actually not uh, able, truly, to uh, deal with our Yetzer Tov. Because our Yetzer Tov is like, I mean, it's like Hulk and an army and like the whole entire shield base before Hydra broke into it. And like a rocket ship bigger than Thanos' ship, like it's basically what I need you to know. It's ridiculous. Like if you cause your Yetzer Tov to like rise up and do what it needs to do, it's going to be amazing. This is like deep to the core, like Hashem taught you Torah in the womb type stuff. Because every human being that walks this earth has been taught Torah. And it's deep down within us. And when you unlock that, that unleashes the power of your Yetzer Tov because that innate ability in you to return back to Hashem, again, because Shuva, return, you're getting outside of creation now. You're going back to before you were actually conceived and you're bringing that latent power and connection and energy down into your physical being, your existence. And it will blow up the system. It will blow up creation with the light of Hashem. Which, if enough of us do this, this is literally what brings the final redemption. So this is why it's so important for all of us to do this. So anyway, so that's how this week's Torah portion relates to Kaye Sarah. I could go on, but all of it to say is that there's there's this insulation that's laid down for us. There's, uh, here, let me just put it this way. Continuing on, it says, Abraham was troubled by this, but God settled the matter, instructing Abraham to follow Sarah's advice. Abraham's universalism is appropriate in its place, but out of place. See, we should want everyone to come in, but not to an extent to where it damages us. Here we go. It says, it becomes counterproductive. A family or people like any living organism must have well-defined borders. See, you got to have some definition. You got to have some judges. 
Got to have some laws, some Sanhedrin, some Mishnah. Okay. Got to have well-defined borders. And organisms' membranes can be porous, but it must possess a vigilant and finely honed immune system that determines what is allowed to pass through its membranes. If not, the health and integrity of the entire organism is compromised. See, that's ultimately what it's all about. Anyone who wants to convert, anyone who wants to follow Mashiach, anyone who wants to become a Lapid, anyone who wants to be Torah observant, like, get on in here, but don't don't compromise the system. You know, think about if you wanted to bring someone into your household, give them a place to stay and live. You set some parameters. You go, hey, don't eat up all my food and not replace it. You know, don't uh, break my furniture. Don't, uh, you know, blow up my appliances, you know, like things that are common sense. And should this person violate those things, I guarantee you, you don't let them stay unless they didn't do it on purpose. But it's kind of hard to do a sequence of things uh, on accident. Like, oh, I accidentally broke your lamp as I broke your couch as I put tinfoil in your microwave and then I... Uh, broke the heating element in your oven as I broke the door off of your fridge. Okay, that's that's just where you just draw the line. Like, you should have drew the line a long time ago. Or take the line and choke the person with it. Okay, anyway, so that was harsh. So that's what it's like. Last thing for the intro, we gotta do Gamachia, right? So what I find very interesting is that Shof team, first of all, is spelled without a Vav in the first Pasuk of our Parsha. And it should be spelled with a Vav. And if you take out the Vav as it is written in this Parsha, you have Sheen, Pei, Tet, Yod, Mem. That's 300 plus 80 plus 9 plus 10 plus 40. That gives you the total value of 439. So when you look at 439, you basically have 9 plus 3, which is 12. And then you have plus 4, which is 16. The 1 plus 6 is 7. All right. So now when you do the 7, you have this idea of the Shabbat. You also have, again, the 7, like the menorah. And... This is Shoftim without the Vav. But when you add the Vav, it becomes 445, which is the blood of the Aleph Tav, like Et Dam. The letters are the blood of the Aleph Tav because the letters are the essence. And remember the essence, the life of something that's in its blood. And so when we see the letters, it's like that's the blood of Hashem, you know, and so... Aleph to Tav are the letters. There's 22 of them, right? So you have Et Dam. Okay, and then you have 4 plus 4 is 8 plus 5 is 13. So now you have Echad. So now you have this thing to where when you fully spell out the word for Shoftim, you have Echad, you have the blood of the Aleph Tav, literally the blood of Yeshua, and remember, that cleanses us and that purifies us and that removes our evil consciences. So this is why it's a problem 
when we don't grab a hold of Mashiach because that's represented by the Vav. So when you put the Vav into the judges, when you take Mashiach and put him into our observance, you know, as brought down by the sages, as brought down by the Sanhedrin, when we put Mashiach in our lives, you know, bring in his essence, we now go from just having this, this seven, this, this Shabbat, this uh, menorah, to literally like a new beginning and a chad. You know, we have, you know, we have the oneness of Hashem, which is represented in the Olam Haba, because on that day he will be one and his name will be one, which is a chad. And so going up from there, when you really think about it, this is why there's such uh, a, a kind of hindrance and a uh, obstinance, like a just, I don't want to do this. I don't want to listen to that Jewish stuff. I don't want to listen to that oral Torah. Like we need to be following something else other than the oral Torah. Like the Jews don't got it. Like this is why that all those conversations and things come up. Because the very thing that would purify and cleanse you of that consciousness that is so adamantly against these things, this is what you need. It's literally, it's like, I don't like broccoli, you know, and it's just like, well, okay, so minus the allergies and all that kind of stuff, I don't have any broccoli allergies. Thank you, Hashem. Broccoli is good for me. But just say, if you didn't like broccoli, but what broccoli has to benefit you, it's just like, well, I don't like it. Well, if you eat it, it'll actually take care of everything that you need help with. You know, so you eat the broccoli and you're like, oh, I don't know why I hated broccoli. I, actually, I love broccoli. That's like Shoftim. You're like, you're like, man, the Sanhedrin and Talmud and like all this Orator stuff and like all this rabbinic stuff. And like, I don't know, man, like they shouldn't have that much power. Like Yeshua said, don't call anybody rabbi. Sira EGT on that. Um, and also Zipport Aish, one of our local Avenger podcasters of the Lapid Sar Shalom Mishpacha. Uh, I will insert some of her clips as well, and you can kind of hear from her on that. It's really cool. But anyway, I uh, digress. So all these different things start happening. You're just like, oh, my goodness. Like, if I just follow it, it'll it'll literally help me. You know, this this does things like keep you from sitting in the dark on Shabbat, uh, eating cold food on Shabbat, because you're not supposed to kindle the fire. So how are you going to have hot food on Shabbat? Well, guess what? The rabbis figured it out. Anyway, so um, there's that. And then one of the coolest things that I thought was amazing about putting the Vav in Shoftim and spelling it fully is that it equals the word for stumbling blocks. From Yehezekiel, my favorite prophet, even though I shouldn't have favorites, but I do, uh, and when I get to the Alam Habab, Bezrat Hashem, uh, that I get there, I would love to sit down and talk to this guy like forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's how much I like him. Anyway, ask me who I like. So, <laughs> Hamishkalim is, or Slika, Ha, Ma, Ma, Meek, Mao, blah, blah, blah. Hamik Sholim. Hamik Sholim. Uh, so Yezekiel 21, 15. So it's all about, this talks about ruin in this verse, but 
It's literally the word for stumbling block. And so again, you think about setting up a king, you think about the cities of refuge, think about the prescriptions for going out to war, because that also happens in here. Think about cutting down a tree and all that kind of stuff. That's also in here. Uh, upholding the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. That's in here. Uh, Keher Tumash. By the way, I call it the KCI, the Keher Hasidic Insights. Um, and also the KI, which is the Kehert interpolated, which where they take the commentary and put it in with the verses. So the bold writings is the actual scripture verse and the non-bold is the commentary. And you just kind of read it as one narrative. But anyway, you get into all these things and some of these things are stumbling blocks. Like you easily trip over them if you are, uh, if you have an agenda of your own. Or if you're not willing to stop, learn, look, you know, investigate and kind of connect some dots. Usually, if you have an aversion to something in Torah, it's, to, it's because you need to just kind of stop for a second and go, why am I against this? Why do I not like this? Line that all out and then connect those dots there. So why do I not want the oral Torah? Well, I don't want the oratory because it has a lot of rules. And a lot of those rules I don't know. Okay, just being an example. So now, if you just don't want to do the oratory because there's too many laws and you haven't read all of it and you feel like you don't have time to learn all that, and besides, why should we learn from people who rejected Yeshua? Well, the thing is, on paper, these people don't really reject Yeshua and Technically, they don't because they literally are perpetuating his teachings because Yeshua taught oral Torah because he is the oral Torah. But anyway, um, and JC, as far as persona, not necessarily name uh, of a person who came and is a God, not to be different from God, but different and lead followers away from Torah, like that becomes a problem. So it's technically, if you start to really look at that, okay, that's not what the sages are writing against. They're just writing against what uh, Catholicism and, and Rome has decided to call the Messiah. Interesting to note that Yosef was seen in the same light. Like when the brothers came to Mitzrayim, they didn't think Yosef was a Jew. And it's just kind of like you had to put two and two together when they started having dinner with him and Jews eat kosher and he had kosher meals. And then, you know, he didn't do anything uh, like uh, work wise on Shabbat and, you know, was very shomer. I mean, him, his wife, Asnat, uh, and his two sons. They were the only Jews in Egypt until more and more people got circumcised because they were hungry. But I digress. So you start connecting these dots. You're like, wait, 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 wait. This guy that we don't even think is Jewish is doing a whole lot of Jewish stuff. So I wonder if he's Jewish. That's what you got to start to think, you know, and it's the same thing with Mashiach Yeshua that Rome has taught about him so much. But where are the Jews that teach about him? I mean, it's just kind of like can't just use the cop-out card that his followers aren't Shomer. Like, stop that. 
all of his followers are Shomer, you know, as far as the ones who are writing, you know, like uh, Yochanan, uh, Kepha, uh, Shaul, um, Yehuda. Uh, did I mention Yaakov? If not, I'm going to mention it again. So what is that all about? I just, I don't know. I just asked because it's, it's kind of weird to me. So stumbling blocks, that's totally partial shof team. But you find out, you just get into the oral Torah, you get into the commentaries, seek out Mashiach in the commentaries. That sounds so trivial. It's like, obviously, I would seek out Mashiach when I read the commentaries. Don't talk to me like I'm a child. And it's like, I'm talking to you like a child of God, <laughs> that uh, you should love God and read the commentaries looking for Yeshua. Anyway, it's a little shul joke. Got into a lot of that on Shabbat. That was hilarious. But I just want to encourage us all on that, that, you know, let's go forward. We're going into 5780. Bezrat Hashem, it will be the beginning of the Alam Haba. But if not, then we will continue to hasten the Gula as much as we can. So, Parsha Shof team, watch out for stumbling blocks. Put the blood of the Aleph Tav on you. And uh, let's go. So that'll do for the intro. All right, and we are back. So now I'm going to get into the Sanhedrin for just a moment. So this will, I don't know. I was going to say this is going to be a short one, but uh, I could be wrong. This is the Kehert Humash we're using here. So in the Kehert Humash, this is what he says about the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin shows up in, in uh, Perak 17, which is funny because the Gematria of 17 is Tov. So this is what it says about the Sanhedrin from the KCI, the Kehert Hasidic Insights. It says the Sanhedrin, the high court of 71 judges, inherits its authority from Moshe. This is why Yeshua would say they sit in the seat of Moshe. Moshe had a very big seat. It was 71 people. Like, that's how big it was. So the chair of Moshe is 71 people. Called the Sanhedrin. And again, it's brought down that there's a sword that dangles above their head and the pit of Gehenna is open underneath them. That is commentary on this week's Torah portion. So careful if you want to be a judge or a Sanhedrin. It's not good. Uh, I mean, it's it's good, but it's just you can't just be playing around up there. Don't just go. Ha, 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 no driving on Shabbat. Don't do that because you're going to get into some interesting things with that. Anyway, uh, let me just get back to the commentary since I only read one phrase. OK, it says the 70 elders. Okay, so the Sanhedrin inherits from Moshe and the 70 elders. That's why it's 71, because it was the 70 elders and Moshe, Sanhedrin. Okay, so that means we had a Sanhedrin in the wilderness. Oh, man, because when Moshe passed away, it was Yehoshua and the 70 elders. So get you some of that. All right, so uh, God elect selected, Slika, God selected to assist him 
to assist him in his capacity to or as the supreme legal authority of the Jewish people. All right. So the cool thing about that is that the Sanhedrin is from Moshe and the 70 elders and they assist in supreme legal authority of the Jewish people. Now, says the basic function is judicial, hence Shoftim, judges. So then let me go over here. I want to look at this footnote real quick. Um, It's like uh, shoveling uh, notes around and stuff. Um, thank you for your patience. I always tend to share things that I don't, uh, intend to share, but I share them anyway. All right, let's, let's get to where we need to go here. Chapter 16. And all the good stuff's in 16. I keep missing it. Going too fast. Here we go, here we go, here we go. All right. So, the thing is about that... Okay, so when the Sanhedrin is set, you go to Shemot 21.1. You go to Bami Bar 11, 16 through 17, and 24 through 25. This talks about uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, basically, and their legal authority and capacity. Now, its basic function is judicial, i.e., to render final decisions and all matters of law brought before it by lower courts or designated specifically for its judgment. Because, you know, there's smaller courts. It's like a court of 23, and then there's a court of like... uh, Where is that broken down at? Just had that over here somewhere. Well... I had it, but it's not in front of me right now. But there are lower courts, and it ultimately gets down to like three. And so um, this is why we have a Beit Dean at Sar Shalom, where you have like three observant Jewish men, and uh, they have the ability to make a halakhic decision. They don't have the ability to cancel the Torah, though, which is super important because, remember, we're not supposed to add to the Torah But yet you can do that with the Sanhedrin. They're not adding to the Torah, though. So it's like, don't understand how candle lighting is not adding the Torah. Well, let's talk about it. So the Torah says you shall keep the Shabbat. And sages brought down. Well, yeah, let's keep the Shabbat by lighting candles. That's how it works. Okay. It says that also, in addition, it is responsible for ensuring that the populace Know the law and obey it. Assisted when necessary by law enforcement officers known as sheriff. This is the shoterim. So shoftim or judges shoterim are officers. And it says in these respects, it fills the same function 
in the Torah's legal system for Jews that non-Jewish courts fill within the legal system incorporated under, and yes, they use it, I don't know why, the Noahide Code for non-Jews. The only problem with that is the Noahide laws were given back to Israel upon the giving of the Torah, so there's not really a way to say that the Noahides belong to non-Jews. And besides, it's not just seven laws, it's categories of laws that are really codified underneath the Ten Commandments. So really, what are we saying when we drop that in there? Also, it's important to note that establishing courts of law don't ever break the law, or at least they're not supposed to. If they do, that's not good. But uh, yeah, so if we think about it, the Sanhedrin is the same thing that we use even here in the in the United States that, you know, we have our our local civil courts. You know, they make the rulings, they make judgments and things like that that need to happen. And it's all within the context of the Constitution. Same thing. Sanhedrin, the sages and the rabbis, they do the same thing within the context of the Torah. So this is that whole thing that we always bring up in commentary that if you read Parsha Shoftim, you understand how there's this empowering to make these laws because it works the same way like in our justice system here in America. The Torah prescripted that, and we're seeing that here in chapter 17 and also at the beginning of our Torah portion about the judges that should be appointed. So, continuing on, it says, In addition, however, the Sanhedrin is empowered within the Torah's guidelines. See, there's a key phrase. Within the Torah's guidelines. So, therefore... Anything that they do doesn't add or take away from Torah because it's within the Torah. Okay, so it says to create new laws. They're empowered within the Torah's guidelines to create new laws. I love that. It says in this capacity, Sanhedrin is the seedbed of the oral Torah. When we talk oral Torah, that's ultimately where it goes to. This is why you can read a Rabbi Monk. You can read a uh, Bahaturim, you can read a Rashi, you can read a Ramban or a Rambam, but they all point back to the Oral Torah as granted to us from the Sanhedrin. And yes, Moshe and the original 70 elders are the original Sanhedrin. And so Sanhedrins that come after them are based upon them. So that's your Oral Torah. So we say... Yeah, I'm going to study some more Torah today. And we pick up like the Midrash says, or we pick up the Midrash Rabbah. It's because those all point us back to what's brought down originally. So there's all that. Then it says, this is what also I always want to encourage people to read footnotes. You know, read your footnotes. If you see little numbers in your text, read it. Get yourself sourced out. Don't just go, oh yeah, I was reading and, you know, uh, Rabbeinu Bakia, and it's like, well, what was he quoting from? And it's like, okay, well, he was quoting from da-da-da. Okay, but anyway, so it says that uh, they are the seedbed of the oral Torah, expanding it and applying it to new cases in accordance with the growth and development of the civilization. This is kind of that, uh, you know, go as you grow kind of thing. 
which is what, you know, we've really done at Sar Shalom that a lot of what we do now, we weren't doing, you know, a few years ago. A lot of the stuff we weren't even doing last year. So, you know, it's just kind of one of those things where as we are undergoing growth and development, you know, we get to expand and apply. This is why, again, I want to encourage everyone, especially when you're new and when you're coming in and if you've been somewhere before and now you're here, you know, whether it be Sar Shalom or anywhere in Lapide, that there are things that we're currently not doing and there's a reason why we're not doing them. And it's not always because we don't know. That was one of the things that got me. I when I was bucking the system, uh, and and I ultimately, you know, had my issues. That things that I was bucking on, they they knew already. The bait dean already knew about it. They're like, yes, we know that. Yes, we've heard that. And yes, if you read Rambam, there's a lot of things that you pretty much just feel like you're going to go to Gehenna because you're just, you're not upholding it. And it's just like, well, who is Rambam? It's like, well, he was one guy and he wasn't a Sanhedrin. Oh, well, that would have been helpful. But, you know, that's fine. Anyway, so that's in, that's usually what happens. But I bring this up because you'll start to see that with growth and development comes applying, okay, and expanding. So we'll be able to do some of these things. Like currently, we don't get to do a Musaf service. Currently, we don't have a, a daily minion that we can do, um, you know, all the prayers. So guess what? If we have growth and development, we can do these things. On the flip side of that. It's not just the fact of you doing things and applying things as much as it is, is where's your heart with Hashem? Because so what if you dive in three times a day and do it all in Hebrew? If you don't love God and you're mean to people, you just defeated the point, especially if you're not making Teshuvah, you're defeating even more of the point. So, you know, there's that. And if you could do all the services and if you could do all the Halakha, and again, you're mean to people and you don't love God. Like, that's not good. So these are things just to, you know, balance. Be careful, you know, grow and develop out of a love and a passion for God. Like, make sure your fire is adequate to the vessel in which it illuminates from. You know, this is the whole idea of the concept of a lamp, you know, having enough oil in your lamp. You don't want your oil to run out because when the door opens, i.e. the final redemption, you want to still make sure you got oil in your lamp. You're still excited. You still have a vibrant love for God and his Torah, you know, filled with the spirit, walking in it, you know, and you love people just as much as you love God, you know, kind of thing. So you want to make sure you have that. So stick around. There will be more things that will uh, develop with Sar Shalom. I mean, we're getting a mikvah with the help of Hashem. I mean, so we'll be able to have a, a, that whatever Kedusha that brings down, which is a lot. Uh, so I don't want to flippantly say that like, yeah, we're just getting a little mikvah. It should be just a little Kedusha is going to come down. Don't worry. Nothing too, nothing too crazy or dramatic. You know, it's like, no, you're getting a mikvah. It's going to be. You ain't going to even know what that means until you see what it means. 
So this is why it will be such an uphill battle, you know, to undergo uh, during this process. So, you know, suit up. Be a Shuva hero. All right. So uh, now it says, as such, the Sanhedrin expresses our most sublime spiritual potential to identify so completely with God that we assume his role as the source of Torah. Because when you get into the halakha, the, the minutia of all of the observance, it should flow from a place of being one with Hashem. This is not your own thing. This is not your ego puffing up. But this is like, Hashem, how can I ensure to sanctify and set apart the Shabbat? I'm just going to keep sticking with this example because I love candle lighting and the Havdalah service. Like these things aren't lined out in Torah, but yet they're so integral to Shabbat. So when you understand why we light candles before and after the Shabbat, like it's like, wow, that's amazing. It, it comes from like the the heart and the inner desire and the delight of Hashem to set apart this day and keep it keep it unlike any other day of the week. Like you will know it's Shabbat. Like what other day do you light candles to start and light candles to finish? None. You may light candles on other days, but you don't say a bracha. You don't pull out the challah. You don't pull out, you know, the hand washing and the kiddish and all that kind of stuff and have a fancy meal, you know, get dressed in your finest clothes, you know. I mean, it's set apart. So if you really think about what this really means to be so one with Hashem that it's as if you become the source of Torah. Like, say lie on that. Uh, so yeah, so that's the Sanhedrin. So that was a shorter section than I thought, but you know, Baruch Hashem. All right, so now to get to everything uh, that I wanted to kind of hone in on uh, out of all the scattered insights and amazing, mind-boggling things that I've gotten to read so far from Parsha Shof team and just glean from. Hashem, I take your word and I hide it in my heart. Thank you so much for this opportunity to just be able to study this Parsha. It's ridiculous. And it's not even halfway through the week yet. But, I mean, I want to take us to chapter 19, talking about in the future when Hashem will expand your boundaries as he swore to your forefathers. Okay. So, first of all, let's get a little bit of context real quick. Because this, from the KCI, the Kerhurt Hasidic Insights, is going to say that the Geula, it's going to start talking about the Geula being a mitzvah. Like, that's all I needed to read. I almost started podcasting right there as I read this. But anyway, let's put some framework on this. All right, so let's go back to Parsha, or at one of the tour portions in Bami Bar, where there's the battle against Sikhon and Og. Okay, two giants. They're like the doorposts of the land, like 
all the nations were like, we got Sikon and Og, ain't nobody getting in here. I know Israel thinks they coming, but they're going to get shut down at the door. So Sikon and Og had like all of this uh, area, you know, you got Moab, you got Ammon, and you got uh, Midian and all that. There's these little three territories. Hashem never told us to go into the land and take those three territories. Now, he said, those are going to come in the future. Then you start reading in Ezekiel about the borders of the land. It's going to be ridiculous. And then you start reading about the Alam Haba and how the land of Israel is going to be like the whole entire world. Hence why everyone will be Jews in the time to come. So it's really futile if you don't want to be Jewish, but you have a choice. We all have a choice. Bazaar Hashem, everyone chooses life, like Hashem said to do. But anyway, so where we are currently, though, in the Parshot, uh, especially before Sefer Yehoshua or Sefer Yeshua, I love it. Yeshua's in the Tanakh, I love it. Anyway, so, um, and he has his own book. And it's all about fighting and spiritual warfare and taking the land and, and stuff like that. Entering into the promises of God, if you will. So we're supposed to be entering into the land. We're supposed to take out the seven nations, supposed to build a temple. Then we can appoint a king. Then we can start looking at maybe some extra land if we need to. The only problem is we never even got all that far. We really didn't get to take over all the land. And then we really didn't get to build a temple until Shlomo. And then we appointed a king way before we built the temple. And we started trying to go after other lands before getting all of our stuff done. And in chapter 19, we're given prescriptions on the options to go outside of the land of Israel to conquer more territory, like optional warfare. But I want to just stick where we are. We're entering in. We're not supposed to be taking over any other portion other than what the Canaanites have. Well, because of Sikon and Og, we ended up getting those other three pieces, which is why Reuben and God wanted to be in those areas and then the half tribe of Menashe and all that. So kind of this end part of Bamibar kind of breaks that all down. And in the commentary on that, the Chazal bring down that this was Hashem working with us to hasten the final redemption. But, you know, Moshe struck the rock. And so he couldn't really go into the land. And then Yehoshua had to take over. Mashiach was still to come. So technically we couldn't have the final redemption, but the workings and the opportunity was there for it to occur. And so that's kind of one of the things to kind of look at. Like Hashem is always ready to speed up the redemption. It's not this well, I don't know. Should we really try to pray for it? Should we really try to like walk in it? Because that's the other thing about the redemption is that we should be living as if we're already in the Alam Haba. Like we should strive to live, you know, at Shalom with all mankind, strive to live uh, purified of our Yetzirah's influencing us into sin. We should be using our Yetzirah to do Torah and mitzvot because uh, that is possible. Subdue it, you know, and things like that. We should be living in that mindset, that consciousness, that reality now. 
uh, everything is for Hashem, it, nothing belongs to me, you know, I don't exist, only Hashem, you know, my, I've died with Messiah, the pervert, that, that's what that means, you know, like, no longer I live, but he lives in me, you know, having just this selflessness, this humility, and things like that, and making this world a, a home for the divine presence, you know, like, even without a temple, making it feel as if the temple's here, so bringing forth the fragrant aroma through our deeds, through our words, through our actions, through our endeavors in life. You know, we're putting out Ketorit, you know, the fragrant aroma. You know, our life is the Corbinot. You know, we're constantly laying ourselves down on the altar and sacrificing ourselves, you know, and davening constantly, singing constantly, you know, having the Levitical service be our heart. You know, our heart sings. You know, if we don't personally sing, you know, it's just like, wow, like illuminating, you know, that makes a difference in your home. That makes a difference in your community. That makes a difference in your work. Uh, even when you're driving, people can tell by the way you drive if you have an alam haba mentality, you know. And so obviously I'm struggling in that part. But, you know, I uh, probably need to throw it in overdrive, but I need to hit the reverse right now. Anyway, lots of terrible car puns. But anyway, you can exude these things. And so that's kind of one of the things. So anyway, back to our point here that we ended up getting Olam Haba status land, but we weren't hastening the Olam Haba in our own intentions. Like this just ended up happening. Like we were like, hey, we're coming in. We're just wanting to pass through. We just need to get over here to take out seven Canaanites you know, those nations, Sakon and Og were like, no, the king of Edom was like, no, and we're all going to fight you. So everybody tried to come at us and we ended up winning and taking their land. So because of that, we had the opportunity to, to bring in the final redemption, you know, even though we were lacking Moshe, even though we were lacking the, even though we had uh, sin with the golden calf, even though we still weren't purified from the counsel of the serpent from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So with all that being said, this is kind of where we are. You know, the stage is set for us as Lapidim, Shuva heroes, Avengers, you know, Geula talking that, Hashem is setting up the world for the final redemption right now. He's setting us up, you know, um, all of us being so adamant about Torah study, being adamant about prayer, adamant about guarding our tongues, you know, like this right here is some Alam Haba stuff. Like this has temple built all over it, you know, because the temple's built with words. It's torn down with words. You know, so having hatred and animosity against people and speaking Lashon Hara and uh, just baseless hatred, all that kind of stuff, that's what destroys. That's what builds the exile. Side note, what also builds up the exile is not tithing and giving tzedakah and being charitable. So the more we do that as well, we build up. So... We have this opportunity. Hashem is giving us all this opportunity. He's making it happen. The things that we have been doing, the fruit is showing. The The harvest is ripe. So just want to encourage us on that because now I'm going to get into this point. Here's what it says. 
It says the Torah has alluded to the Messianic redemption before. What I thought was interesting because I read the footnotes. It says the Torah alluded to the redemption before and Shemot chapter 15, verse 7 and Bami Bar 23, 9, Bami Bar 24, 19, etc. It's just like, OK, so the final redemption is like all throughout the Torah. But you have to have eyes to see and ears to hear on top of you got to learn the oral Torah. Got to get some insights, get some commentary, start to learn the resurrections in there. Because some people say, oh, well, tell me where there's resurrection in the five books of the Torah. And it's just like, oh, you don't know, man. OK, because God is God of the living, you know, so Abraham's not dead. Yitzhak's not dead. Jacob's not dead. You know, all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, yeah, they are. It's just like, well, Hashem doesn't refer to them as if they are. And what's this commentary about the righteous? Even in their death, they're considered alive. But yet the wicked, even in their life, is considered dead. I don't know. Tell me about that. So I'm here. Let's talk. Anyway, so the Torah is always alluded to the final redemption. Continuing on, and it says, and it will again later. And it literally goes footnote chapter 30 which by the way is one of the main passages used in the torah to talk about hashem being mashiach yes i've said it mashiach is literally the manifestation of hashem because when it says that i will return your exiles well all the commentaries say that mashiach is going to be the gatherer of the exiles namely mashiach ben yosef but yet Hashem is the one who said in the Torah that I'm going to gather it. It's like, is it Mashiach or is it Hashem? And the answer is yes. So anyway, because Hashem is one. And so if you have something else being Hashem, then what does that really mean? You know? I just, I just blue screen on that. So I don't even know why, because, I mean, I've heard that before, but I guess it just has a whole new meaning to me now. Anyway, so it says, but here in our Parsha, it makes the redemption part and parcel of a mitzvah. In doing so, it precludes two mistaken notions that a person could entertain about its promises of a future redemption. Okay, so number one, it says the Torah promises, the Torahs, the Torahs promises of redemption can be annulled for some reason. See, redemption can be annulled. That's one of the biggest reasons why we haven't experienced redemption yet, because it can be annulled. How can it be annulled? Well, let me tell you, it says, for example, they could be forfeited by the nation's misbehavior. Just going to tell you right now, marrying outside of the faith, forsaking Torah observance, slandering Mashiach, baseless hatred, Lashon Hara, not giving tithes, not giving Tadaka, these things nullify the final Geula. We could have had it by now, I'm pretty sure. It's been 2,000 years. Well, it's been more than 2,000 years, but anyway. 
number two, it says the redemption will be a solely spiritual occurrence and the prophecies referring to it may be interpreted solely metaphorically. So it's just like, well, don't get too crazy because really the essence of the redemption is spiritual. Hence why Mashiach being the redeemer, you know, is like so awesome because he redeemed us and he brought a spiritual redemption. But our outward and our physical is just like, this is not redemption. Like I am still struggling over here. And it's just like, well, but my spirit's not. My outer man is decaying, but my spirit man is growing stronger every day. And it's just like, well, Baruch Hashem, can we fix the other part too? Yeah. So anyway, so there's that. But it goes on to say, it is true that God promises, that God's promises can be annulled. This is why Yaakov was afraid that he no longer observed or no longer deserved God's promised protection when he was about to confront Asav back in Parsha Vayishlach. It says, but the Torah's mitzvot cannot, the Torah's mitzvot cannot be abrogated. So a promise that is part of a mitzvah cannot be annulled. So we have a dichotomy, right? The redemption is part of a is part of a mitzvah, but yet the mitzvah can never be annulled. So how do, can we say the redemption is forfeited since it, it's part of a mitzvah that can't be forfeited? So continue reading. It says, similarly, although there will indeed be a spiritual dimension to the redemption, which will in fact be its principal significance, the redemption will also be manifest physically, just as all the Torah's mitzvot must be fulfilled physically, notwithstanding their great spiritual relevance or relevance. I love how it's just like not really answering the point of the dichotomy yet. It's just making us wait. But the redemption is technically, principally, it's spiritual, but it does play out physically. So that's what we're waiting on. So Baruch Abba Shem Adonai. So it says, when in the future, God, your God, expands your boundary as he swore to your forefathers, it is no accident. The future redemption is alluded to in the context of the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge protect the inadvertent murderer from the blood avenger and the murderer's exile to the city of refuge atones for his inadvertent sin. Allegorically, the blood avenger is our Yetzirhara who attempts to trick us into sinning and thereby suffering from suffering some form of death from a loss of vitality in our spiritual endeavors up to and including incurring the death penalty itself. The messianic redemption will be our ultimate refuge from this pursuer inasmuch as the Yetzirah will then be nullified. Similarly, the messianic redemption and the attendant restitution of the temple service will afford all who need it the opportunity to complete their atonement. All right. So since this commandment cannot be annulled, it's going to happen. And when it happens, all of the misbehavior that occurs from 
causing the redemption to be delayed will ultimately have that opportunity to be rectified when the redemption happens. So the dichotomy is actually um, brought to some form of resolution and understanding that the redemption can be delayed, but it cannot ever be nullified. But the actions that cause the redemption to be laid will be nullified when the redemption happens. So there's kind of like this back and forth, this tug of war, this seesaw kind of thing of like hasten, hasten, delayed, delayed, hasten, hasten, delayed, delayed. So may we be the generation that Hashem allows to see the final redemption because instead of the momentum of the delay, we overdo it on the momentum of hastening it. So not overdoing it as in like make it null and void, but like really be in there, really put our heart into it, really dig deep, you know? And uh, this next thing here, it says, when in the future God expands your boundary as he swore to your forefathers, besides initiating the resumption of all the Torah's laws that were suspended during exile. This is one thing to nullify, but it's another thing for things to be suspended, like the temple sacrifices, which by the way, even though we can't physically do it, we spiritually get to do it, which again, that's the principle of it. Because when we do our prayer times, when we do our Arab Shabbat seders, those keep us in line with what's going on in the temple. And if you go to shul, that keeps you in line with what's going on in the temple. Because the shul services are uh, semblances and memorials of what we did in the temple, which is why you should have a worship team because you know, where, you, where else are you going to have the Levites? The Levites were always on duty 24 seven. They were always singing. So imagine men and Levites singing at 3 AM in the morning and the temple just singing. That's ridiculous. So anyway, if you're a person who likes to play music in your house all the time, Baruch Hashem, that's what they did in the temple. Hashem plays music in his house all the time. So why shouldn't we? All right, so goes on to say, we are told about this peace that's going to happen here. So let me go back. It says, um, the advent of the Messianic era will initiate an era of permanent world peace and prosperity. Love that says these changes will not in themselves necessitate any fundamental modification of human nature. After all, there have been times of peace and prosperity in the past, namely under King Shlomo. There was peace in the world to all mankind, but yet there was still sin in the world. Human behavior wasn't rectified yet. So it says, nonetheless, we're told that this peace and prosperity will be eternal which would imply at least an eventual reformation. Oh, I love it. Because this peace is going to be so eternal that eventually there's going to be a reformation. Like, there's going to be a peace that doesn't end. So, like, though human, you know, frailty and everything will still initially exist, as the Olam Haba unfolds, there's more and more and more uh, rectification of mankind. So nature 
the human nature is going to be reformed. Like it's going to undergo that transformation and get us back to beyond where we were in the garden. So it says, in order to preclude any backsliding into maleficence, thus, there are prophecies that indicate that at some point in the messianic future, there will be a radical transformation in human nature, marked by God's removal of the Yetzirah, restoring us to moral innocence of Adam and Hava before they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge the tree of knowledge. So that's cool because the Yetzahara wasn't internal in Adam and Hava until they ate from the tree. And so, yeah, they were basically they who knew no sin and they became sin. So, yeah, that's why the first Adam and the second Adam, you know, you got to look at what was going on there. All right. So then it says when that transformation occurs, intentional murderers will no longer or intentional murders will no longer be committed. And even unintentional murders will not occur since unintentional sins occur when some inner hidden fault surfaces and will be purged. And we will be purged even of such faults that right there just wants me to make me seem. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. Yeah, start getting my hymns on. Anyway, when peace like a river attend in my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Alright, anyway. So uh, there will be no more pain, no more sorrows. So that peace like a river, like that's that's just going to be the song. Just, just put that on repeat. No more sorrows and sea billows roll. It's truly going to be well with our soul. Anyway, so that's something like to look forward to. And I do want to just shout out the current events. Not that uh, we should be happy about them because we're not. But just a sign of the intensity of the exile is the continued reports of of shootings and killings and natural disasters and impending threats and wars and rumors of wars and all that. Mashiach said these things are supposed to happen and that's letting us know how close we are. So one of the other reasons why the Gula talk is so important uh, to me, is that if we don't talk about the Geula, how are people going to know we need it? And furthermore, if we don't fight for the Geula, staying stuck in exile is just not a way to do it. Like, there are better ways to spend our existence, and it's not just sitting and rotting in exile. Like, that does not sound fun. That's just like, yeah, that's cool. We're in jail right now. We got four square meals a day, maybe, or I don't know, free Wi-Fi or something. Never been in jail, so I don't know. I uh, don't want to go to jail either. So there's that. But uh, yeah, so that's like what exile is, just like being in jail. Like, why are we in jail? We don't need to be in jail. <laughs> Let's get out. Let's do, do what we're supposed to do because Hashem has the key to jail and he unlocks it. He can open it up. So that is uh, the Gula talk for Parsha Shoftim.
And uh, now to the bonus round. All right, so the funny thing about this being the bonus round is that you can tell how much influence the incredible Professor Talmud has on me, uh, Mikael, because, uh, you know, Tony Stark and uh, Bruce Banner, they have such a, a witty relationship. And, you know, Tony Stark loves Bruce Banner. And so it's no different. I love Mikael. Like this guy is just, he truly is. He fits his name. Incredible Talmud. So um, he did the bonus round on his video about, you know, what is Lapide, which, by the way, I encourage everyone to check out Lapide Judaism and my Sarshalom blue logo on YouTube and on Anchor. Um, get subscribed and check those things out, man. So amazing. But on the YouTube Lapid Judaism channel, uh, you know, the incredible talent, he did a wonderful job on his video and I'll just have to tell y'all, I got to be there for the live recording and I literally just, I felt like lightning bolts were just shooting through my body. And I just like, I don't know how I drove home. I don't know how I slept. I don't know how I woke up. It was just like ridiculous. So anyway, it's such a blessing to be a part of that. And so he did a thing in there called the bonus uh, round. And he just added, you know, extra insights just because. So that's what I'm going to do. The thing is, is I don't know if it's going to be as fun as his were because First, uh, first of all, I want to give a warning that I'm about to talk about money and the importance of that. And, um, you know, because of what's happened in church and name it and claim it gospels and so on and so forth. It's just like, why we got to talk about tithes? Why we got to talk about money? Like, why does the church need our money? Why does the shul need our money? You know, why does Rabbi Griffin always want to talk about kol echad and give, 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 support the mikvah and all this kind of stuff? Well, I'm going to talk about it because because uh, I am parsha re'e, like I'm going to throw it all the way back there on it. But first, I'm going to give us some... Uh, some some hopefully easily digestible things that uh, I just got to glean that I just want to share. So first of all, um, you know, when the Yamsu split, Zohar Beshalak uh, from the Sonsino Presodition uh, brought down that the sea split because Hashem made a covenant with the angel who is over the sea, all the waters of the earth, basically, and uh, said that there's going to become a point in time where I'm going to bring my children here and I'm going to need you to split the sea for them. And so there was this whole backdrop, a story on the agreement that the angel made with Hashem. He's like, OK, Hashem, you asked me to do this. When that time comes, I will do it. So Yom Suf being parted for the children of Israel to go through is a miracle, no doubt. But even beyond that is the fact that it was an appointed time. And it's an appointed time, just like Pesach or Hanukkah or Sukkot. Like when you learn that we don't call our, uh, 
our holidays in, in Judaism, we don't call them holidays. We call them Moedim, appointed times. So if you meet up with the appointed times that Hashem has set and not what man has set, i.e., I know the 14th of Nisan is Pesach, but I'm going to do it on the 13th or I'm going to do it on the 11th or something like that, or maybe like the 18th, then you miss the miracle. So I just thought that was something that was really cool, that miracles really come through appointed times and Hashem already has these things set even before they occur. So obviously, if you know the end from the beginning and if you know about all of creation, which includes time and you're outside of all that, then, you know, there's something. But there's that. So I want to share that to you. It's a little Zohar drop. Uh, the next one, Rebenu Bakya on Shemot 15.7, because I was wondering why the Kerherd Humai said Shemot 15.7 talks about the redemption. But as I was looking it up, I just got sideswiped by Rebenu Bakya. So he's bringing down some commentary here um, from the Tehillim. And so here's what he brings down. He says, you destroy your opponents. The reason Moshe employed the word you destroy, a word applicable to the destruction of buildings, may have been to demonstrate that whereas the Egyptians have forced the Israelites to build, God now tore down the very people for whom these buildings have been constructed. So the Egyptians were like, I'm going to tear down the Jews so that they can build up. Hashem was like, well, fine, I'm going to tear down the Egyptians and I'm going to build up the Jews and destroy those buildings that the Egyptians made the Jews build as they were tearing down the Jews. Like that's pretty much what just happened in that comment. So then it says, this would be another illustration of Mita Kenegat Mita, measure for measure. This is precisely what impressed Yitro when he said, Shemot 18.11, by the very matter with which they had sinned. Goyim, Gentiles, were impressed by how God made the punishment fit the crime. Moshe said, uh, Kamika instead of Kiminu, which is those who oppose you, instead of those who oppose us. Moshe thereby equated the people who attack Yisrael with an attack against God himself, i.e. the Shekinah. All right, so, you know, I'm going to digress. So, Hashem is attacked when you attack the Jews. And furthermore, when you attack the Jews, you're attacking Hashem, which is attacking the Shekinah. So if you attack the Shekinah, you attack Hashem. If you attack Hashem, you attack the Shekinah, you attack Israel. If you attack the Shekinah, you attack Israel, you attack Israel, you attack the Shekinah. So the Shekinah is Hashem, and Hashem is, you know, likened to the people of Israel. So if you really want to join in Hashem, that's joining in Israel. That's interesting. Because when you look at what Shaul really writes about the body of Mashiach, he says the body of Mashiach is 
a body of many members. So Mashiach's body is the Shekinah, and then the Shekinah is Hashem, and the, Shek and the Shekinah protects Israel. But yet, when you attack Israel, it's like you're attacking Hashem and the Shekinah. So, like this body of many members being Yisrael, who is a manifestation of Hashem, basically, and the Shekinah. So, that's kind of ridiculous when you really think about it. So anyway, Moshe thereby equated people who attack Israel with an attack against God himself, i.e. the Shekinah, which protects Israel. David followed in Moshe's footsteps when he said... Tehillim 83.3, for your enemies rage, your foes assert themselves. People who attack God's people, by definition, attack God. So there's that. Uh, I found that little drop on um, Mount Moriah being the Mount of Teaching. Uh, I don't remember where I put it, though. Let me see if I can go back in my histories. Okay, it's not there. Let's see if it's over here. It was uh, actually from the Midrash Tankuma. I've already taken so many <laughs> screenshots of everything. I'm like, man, that's a great source. Click. It's like, okay, so it's been two days of studying Torah, and I have 200 screenshots. It's in here somewhere. But, you know, thank you, Hashem. Uh, it's actually a way more recent screenshot that I was talking about for Mount Moriah. So I just want to drop down to Midrash Tankuma from the Boo Bear edition, Vayera 45. This is what it says. Another interpretation of Moriah. Okay, remember, this is where the Akedah happened. Also, we found out on Shabbat, this is where the school of the prophets were that uh, Melek Shaul, King Saul, got to go to when he was speaking in tongues and he was sending people to go get David. Uh, the school of the prophets was literally here because this is where the ark rested. Uh, I think it was after Shiloh. I can't remember, but before the temple. So. The Ark is always near Moriah, it seems like. So I just think that's kind of crazy. Amazing. So keep that in mind as we're studying about Moriah right here. Okay, so in the Tankuma Buber, it says, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi said, The place from which the righteous give instructions, which is Moray, to the Holy One, and he acts upon them. It's stated in First Chronicles 24, 5, by lots, he, which is they, organized them, one group with another. Okay, so let's break that down. The righteous give instructions to the Holy One, and he acts. So this is a mountain where those who are righteous, we come to this mountain who can ascend the Mount of Hashem? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, right? That's brought down in Psalms. So when we get there, now we're on this mountain. We can give instructions to the Holy One and He acts upon them. So this is pointed out in the whole thing of Hashem arranging the lots in uh, 1 Chronicles 24.5. So that's the first one. 
It says, Rabbi Shamuel Bar Naman said, what is the meaning of Moriah? says, the place where the Holy One gives instructions, more for the wicked and cast them down to Gehenna, as it is stated in Tehillim 49, 15. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death is their shepherd. I was just really thrown off that, you know, the wicked people, they do have a shepherd. It's called death. The righteous people have a shepherd. It's called life. So that's interesting. It says that, uh, and remember, Torah observance is always connected to life. Disobedience to Torah is always connected with death. So wicked or righteous, life or death, you know, kind of makes that picture easy to see. And it says the upright shall rule over them in the morning and their form shall waste away with no lofty dwelling for it. Rabbi Shimeon ben Yohai says, what is the meaning of Moriah? It is a place of teaching, Moray, situated, Makon, directly under the holy temple above, as it is stated in Shemot 15:17. O Adonai, you have made a site, a Makon, for yourself to dwell in, a sanctuary, O Adonai, which your hands have established. Rabbi Yehuda ben Palma says, what is the meaning of Moriah? Rab, or Abraham said to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, sovereign of the universe, to what place shall we go? HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to him, to the place that I koshet for you. Now this word koshet is nothing but an expression for kishut, which by the way means truth, as brought down in one of the Proverbs. And it says, Thus it is stated in Shemot 19.13, No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot. And it says, Rabbi Pincus ben Hama, the priest, says, What is the meaning of Moriah? The place of authority, which is Marute, for the world. Rabbi Yehuda ben Rabbi Shalom, the Levite, said, where is it shown? And it is stated in First Chronicles 13, 6. Commentary continues to go. But the mountain of teaching being Moriah, I just wanted to source that out because I talked about it in the Red AGT. But um, this is, it's here in the Tankuma for Parsha Bayera. Okay, so now let's go ahead and get into it. Because there's nothing to it but to get into it. So Shonaf Pincus, I like I, I dropped down a little bit of this uh, last week, you know, but I, as I reread it again and got more out of it over the Shabbat, I was just like, man, I got to talk about this and ended up, you know, sharing with Rabbi that, you know, don't ever feel like you need to state like me giving advice to rabbi, like, what is that? <laughs> but anyway, uh, that I'm, I know I don't, I don't mean to talk about it again, or I wasn't even looking forward. And now I'm saying it, you know, talking about the tithe. Funny thing about the tithe is literally 10%. And that is always something that's been just kind of mind boggling to me. Cause it's like, 
It's truly the mustard seed of our observance. Like Yeshua says, if you have faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. And Rabbi was like, we're going to get a new parking lot. We're going to fix that courtyard. We're going to remodel the kitchen and, and we're going to get our mikvah. So like all these things are going to happen, but it's not going to happen if we don't tithe. And the cool thing about that is where is everyone's mustard seed? Think about 10% of your paycheck just for one moment. Don't even think about what it, what life would be like if you didn't have that 10% to use for what you needed to use it for. Because side note, the reason why you feel like you need your 10% is because you're not giving your 10%. So, but look at that 10%. In the grand scheme of things, that's a mustard seed for the projects that need to get done. Our shul doesn't need to be looking so bougie. Like we shouldn't have people needing to swim in when it's a rainy day just to get to shul because like puddles and ridiculousness from not having a parking lot. And then when it's time for Sukkot or when it's time to have, you know, a cookout in our backyard of the shul, we don't have like a cohesive place where we can like go and, you know, it's looks nice or it's all, you know, manicured beautifully. You know, it's all because currently right now it, it looks bougie, you know, like we got to fix it. You know, we got potholes, we got, you know, mud patches, you know, uneven ground, you know, just need some, it needs some love, basically. So the thing is, when you give that mustard seed, no matter how small it is, you literally move a mountain. If 100% of us as social home, as Lapid, if we all give to Lapid, like Hashem is going to do amazing things. We just have to know that we truly have to believe that and trust that. Because why would he ask us to give if he knows that we need it? Okay. Yeshua HaMelech HaMashiach says, you being evil still know how to give good gifts to your parent or your children. How much more so do you think your father is in heaven is able to give good gifts? Like, just think about that. Because we, we operate on a level of wickedness because of our falling to the Yetzirah sometime. Side note, incite your Yetzirah Tov. And you will do bigger things even than giving your tithe. But anyway, because of that status of the human nature, we know when our children want a gift, we don't give them a stone. We don't give them a snake. We don't give them a scorpion. You know, we give them something nice. So if that's our standard, how much more so for Hashem? So this is why trusting him and giving funds is like legit. I also brought down this uh, practical thing of giving a few coins of Zadaka because like I know for me, I was like, yeah, I would love to give more Zadaka. But after I pay my tithe, I'm like, I don't know. But it's yet it, but it's yet that I will go out and, you know, frivolous, frivolously, you know, buy some junk food or whatever. And it's just like. You could have paid Zadaka with that money because you really didn't need the junk food anyway because you have lunch, you know, like you're good. 
if you just plan a little better, you could not even have the opportunity to buy junk food because you need to eat your food. But anyway, so all of that conviction out in public. But uh, yeah, so these things have kind of happened. So I was like, you know what? I would. So I would think like, man, I just, okay, fine. And I'll just get my junk food money. So I'll give like five or 10 or $15, you know, just, just throw it in the Zadaka box. Like I did it. Bless the name of Hashem. You know, try to be cheerful about it, right? Because Hashem loves a cheerful giver. So the thing is, is, okay, but what about the following day? What about the day after that? What about the week after that? And it's like, if you give in these large lump sums over time, because of infrequent giving, you don't give as much. And you feel like you just ripped out half of your being when you did give, which should go to show you the level of Kedusha that is there in your tithing. You're literally are giving a part of who you are. You're literally offering yourself as a living sacrifice. So Romans 12 definitely applies to giving. So just want to point that out there. So, but if you take just a few coins and you start getting in the habit of your giving and you start refining yourself and like, Hashem, like I'm giving, you know, like start to get to a point of tears. You're giving like moved in your heart that you're opening your hand so much and you're just like, wow, like this, you'll start to see it feels good. You'll start to see that it's like, it's transforming who you are because you're just like, man, where can I give? Like, do I have any change left over? You know, you start like looking for ways to start becoming charitable. Then if you're doing that, if you're literally giving coins every day by the end of two months, you'll be amazed at what you have in your Zadaka box and what you can go do with it. You'll be amazed that if you just took, you know, um, maybe another 5% or whatever. And when you gave your tithe, give a 5% to the mikvah and just start getting in a habit of doing that. And be like, Oh, I'm giving 5%. That's nothing. Let me just bump it up to seven, you know, and let me bump it up to 10, you know? And at that point you fulfilled your complete obligation because when you give your biblical tithe, you give a taruma which is, I believe, around a 60th, somewhere around that portion. Uh, it's literally the, the piece of hollow that you break off and burn. Like, that's your taruma. And then you give your 10%. And then you give your second 10%, which uh, goes to, like, yourself. Or in the third and sixth year, it goes to, like, those who are poor and things like that. Because you should live on a seven-year cycle. So, all of that to say, you can start, like doing that and by the time you pay your 10 percent, and then you pay your second 10 percent, it's just like you're not required to give anything beyond that so technically if you paid your tithe and gave your other 10 percent to the mikvah fund like you're you're moving and shaking worlds like it's ridiculous so that's just something i've been thinking about and just wanted to share that with you just on a personal note so now into Shonuf Pincus, i.e. Shavile Pincus, Rabbi Pincus Friedman, Parsha Re'e 5779, translated by Dr. Baruch Fox. So I said this before and I'm going to say it again because this opening title is so amazing. 
It says, be sure to open your hand to him. This is coming from Devarim chapter 15. And it says, opening one's hand to give Zedakah hastens the Geula by shattering the klipa of the hand that was sent to attack our Mikdash. In other words, if you're giving Zedakah, uh, Bava Batra 9a says this mitzvah of Zedakah is equivalent to all the other mitzvot combined. And in 10a, Zedakah is so great because it hastens the Geula. And also, same place, it says, anyone who averts his eyes from giving Zedakah, it is as if he worships idols. So you don't want to pay your tithe. You are nullifying your observance of Torah. Because if you worship idols, it's considered as if you've broken all the mitzvot. But if you repudiate idolatry, it's considered as if you've kept all the mitzvot. Hence why giving Zedakah is that. And remember, who wrote this Talmud? Oh yeah, the Shof team. The people with the sword over their head and the pit of Gehenim open underneath them. So check this out. So brought down here, it says that at first the Torah warns us, this is again, Devarim chapter 15, it warns us, do not clench or close your hand says the Torah commands us to perform a positive act, which is you shall repeatedly open your hand. This is the practicality of what I'm saying. Give a few coins every day. Like cause giving Zadaka to be so frequent that you're you're just repeatedly opening your hand. You fulfill a mitzvah at this point. Now remember, a positive mitzvah over uh, ways or outweighs a negative mitzvah. So do not close your hand. If you don't close your hand, which means you give zedakah, that's a negative mitzvah that you fulfill. But if you repeatedly give, that's a positive mitzvah, which is of a greater weight. And it says, with regards to the reward for this mitzvah, the hands are mentioned once again for in return for this matter Hashem your God will bless you in all your deeds and in everything your hands do clearly there are numerous mitzvot that we perform with our hands such as putting on tefillin returning a lost object taking and waving the lulav writing a sefer Torah and the like yet we do we do not find the that the pasukim or associated with these mitzvot specifically instruct us to utilize our hands to perform these mitzvot for the essence of these mitzvot is not the hands involvement the hand is only the means used to perform the mitzvah okay so some arizal uh in a minute but it says so let's go to the magen avraham oc 51 7 from the Sha'ar Hakavanot states that the Arizal had the custom of giving Zadaka while standing in the middle of the tefillah of Shakarit while reciting the words Vibarek uh, Dod in the Atamoshel Bekol and you shall reign over everything. So, and you shall reign over everything. Ari's always like, all right, let's give Zadaka. So here's where I want to swerve off real quick, because when you give Zadaka, you're going back to the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
And again, this bracha that Hashem owns everything. Because when you see how Hashem has set it up where we have the Shemitah years, then we have the Jubilee year. Like all debts get canceled. So if you loan somebody money, they didn't get to pay you fully back. It doesn't matter. Shemitahs and Yovels, slates wiped clean. So you start anew and it's as if that person never even took your money. Property goes back to its original owner. Slaves get released and all sorts of stuff. So you don't ever get a point to go, oh, so-and-so didn't pay me back. You know, it's just like, no. You experience the Shemitah, they experience the Shemitah. And the cool thing about it is because you've released that and you've let that go. Hashem, not because of that, but indirectly because of your observance of the Shemitah and the Jubilee, he's already like overflowed your vessels because your uh, your crops that you planted in the sixth year, you're still eating off of into the year after the Shemitah because you got to plant now since you had to take a year off for the Shemitah. So when you plant and reap from year six on year seven, you don't get to plant and harvest. Then in year eight, when you start planting again, you're still eating off year six. So you're, for lack of a better term, balling, as they say in the hood, you're rich. Okay, so because you loan so-and-so some money, loan so-and-so some money, it's just like you would think you would be out. And it's like, no, I'm not out because serving Hashem, he's, he's taking care of everything. So, uh, so, yeah, so the fact that the Arizal does that, I thought that was really cool. Then it says, um, this comment's brought down. In the name of Rabbi Pincus of Koritz, may his memory be blessed, by his pupil in the Midrash Pincus 32 in Nofet Zufim, concerning the Arizal's custom, which is a minhag described, it says, if all Yisrael knew how important to give Zedakah, or if all Yisrael knew how important it is to give Zedakah, when uttering and they would all give Zadaka at that time, the Mashiach would come. All right, so let's swerve off again. So one of the things I think would be really cool is if we could start saying which again is, and you reign over everything. Just saying, Hashem, you reign over everything. Like, start giving with that Kavanah. And if we all get to doing that, Mashiach is going to come. So, here's the thing. If we're not charitable, if we're not giving and letting go of our money for Hashem, we are keeping ourselves in exile. We're literally funding the exile because the money we should be giving to Hashem, we're using to purchase things for the exile. And I know paying bills and things like that, but we got to do it, y'all. Like Hashem is going to take care of us. There are just times, even even this past paycheck, I'm just like, Hashem, I don't even know how we're going to pay rent. Like, I just don't know. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, here's all this extra money. And I'm like, what? And it's it's literally so far, it's been like every time. And I'm like, oh. Like, you know, my heart just can't take all this up and down. You know, I'd just rather be like, oh, I can pay rent. And it's great. Thank you, Hashem. I don't have to worry about that. 
And it's just like, no, it's not that you have to worry about that as much as it is you have to constantly come to Hashem, constantly depend on Him. Just like if you would constantly give Zadaka, you it's like today's bread, you know, your daily bread. So I just love that. And you reign over everything, like giving Zadaka. If we all did this, Mashiach would come. All right, so the next thing is, um, I'm going to go down here. Uh, Rabbi Pincus of Koretz, he said, If all Israel knew how important it is to give Zedakah when uttering they would all give Zedakah at the same time, intending to elevate the Shekinah from the dust from her downtrodden state, the Mashiach would come. This ties in beautifully with Chazal's statement above, Zedakah is so great that it hastens the Geula. Nevertheless, it is incumbent upon us to explain why it is essential to give Zadaka precisely at that moment. So there's all that. So now let's go down to some Klippa. So, you know, Klippa is a barrier to holiness or godliness. Like it's something that conceals a light. So this would be like, you know, nuts, pecans, pistachios, whatever. If you saw these things and you didn't know about them, like if you saw a pistachio or a pecan or a nut, like, and you're just like, man, that doesn't look edible. It's got a hard shell. I don't know anything about it. What's inside of it? I don't know. Do I want to crack it open? How do I crack it open? This is what a klepa is. Klepa is something that on the surface, it looks like impenetrable. It doesn't look worth it. It doesn't look like there can't be any value to this. That's called a klepa. And what we're supposed to do in our observance is break those klepa depending on positive or negative charges, which would be the commandments. So like, yes, it's all electricity. Something to think about, too. Positive and negative currents um, create a circuit. So charging up the system appropriately brings the final redemption. So when there is a mitzvah that's a positive mitzvah, like you shall open your hand to those who are destitute, you shall not close your hand. So like when you do the mitzvah appropriately, you bust up the klipa. So some klipa take negative charges, i.e. like don't eat pork, because that klipa, the only way to break that klipa is to abstain from eating it. But other mitzvot, like you shall eat, uh, you know, fish that have fins and scales, or when you have land animals, they shall have a split hoof and chew the cud. Those are positive. So you charge up the system that way. You break open that klipa. Okay, so on to all this, right? So here's the thing. So it says, by the Shela HaKadosh and Kaye Sarah, again, I just want to point out, Shof team, aligns with Chaye Sarah. It's the fifth parasha of Devarim. And Chaye Sarah is the fifth parasha overall of the Taurus or Taurus portions. And so here we go having a Chaye Sarah drop again from Shonov Pincus. So citing the Shela HaKadosh says he explains why a person who has been graciously endowed with wealth by HaKadosh Baruchu behaves miserly and refuses to part with his money by giving zedakah to the poor. 
This again is along those lines that Rabbi Griffin brought down that usually it's the more wealthy people that are uh, less apt to give tithe. So anyway, says such a person should know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the forces of the Satan and the evil powers have taken control of his possessions. He just went out, he like led out with a straight knee to the face. The reason why, if you are so rich and you don't want to part with your stuff, it's because your stuff isn't even controlled by you. It's controlled by Satan and evil powers. So I don't know about you, but that's just that just hurts. You know, like. You think that you're in charge of your stuff, but no, somebody else is. And that's why you're not paying your tithe. It's like, wow. OK. Uh. It says they prevent him from controlling his own funds and using them to fulfill the mitzvah of Zedakah. It is as if all his assets are frozen. But you can think, oh, man, I'm so rich. I'm good. I got everything. And it's like, nope. When you don't pay your tithe, you don't have everything. But if you do pay your tithe, you have everything. So here we go. It says, applying this concept, he interprets the following pasuk concerning Avraham Avinu, Bereshit 24.2. And Avraham said to his slave, the elder of his household, who controlled all that was his. According to the Shela, the depiction, who controlled all that was his, does not refer to Eliezer, but refers back to Avraham himself. In other words, Eliezer served Avraham, who had complete control over his wealth and possessions. So swerve off. Why did Abraham have control over all his possessions? Because he gave constantly. Big on giving. Okay. So let's go down here to the Shlomo Hamelech 23.6. Do not eat the bread of the miserly and do not lust for his delicacies. With regards to this passage, we learn from the Gemara Sota 38b. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi said, anyone who benefits from the miserly transgresses a negative mitzvah as states, do not eat the bread of the miserly, etc. Rav Nachman bar Yitzhak said, he transgresses two negative commandments, do not eat the bread and do not lust. Based on what we learned from the Shelah, the reason for this prohibition is due to the influences of the forces of evil on the miser's property. Hence, it's forbidden to eat his food and one is liable to be harmed and infected by it. So there's that. So where does this whole like not wanting to tithe, I'm not giving my money, don't even talk to me, I wish you would just close your mouth about tithing don't talk to me about it i don't want to hear about it why do you need my money where does that even come from koheles rabbah 520 it was taught in the name of rabbi Meir. when a person is born into this world his hands are clenched as if he is declaring that the entire world belongs to him do or to do with as he pleases, when he passes from the world, on the other hand, pun intended, his hands are wide open as if to say, 
I did not acquire anything in this world. So you realize that you're saying that you're no more mature than a newborn infant because you don't want to pay your tithe. It's like you're born, like you're, you're literally living in the compet, the continued and perpetual state of when the Yetahara enters into mankind because the Yetahara enters into us upon our being born into the world. As soon as we leave the womb, the Yetahara enters into us. So when you're closing your fists, when you don't want to give, you're basically saying, yes, the Yetahara controls me and I am not the master of my own possessions. Going on further, it says it's apparent that Rabbi Meir is teaching us something incredible, but also disturbing. Because after all, Gemara Nida 30b says, yet as soon as it enters the world, a malak comes and slaps it on its mouth, causing it to forget the entire Torah. As it is stated, Bereshit 4.7, loss crouches at the entrance. According to the Maharsha, the malak in question is none other than the Yetzirah, who joins a person at birth. Sanhedrin 91a. From when does the Yetzirah have influence over a person? From the moment of the embryo's formation or from birth? Question mark. The Gemara concludes that it is from the moment of its birth. It supports this conclusion by citing the above sin, which is loss, crouches at the entrance. In other words, this Pasuk is speaking of the Yetzirah, whose influence begins at birth. Side note. Our Yetzer Hatov's influence doesn't really begin until at best bar mitzvah or age of accountability. So it's like about 13 to 20 years behind, which should just let you know how powerful that is, that the Yetzer has to get a head start. Uh, I always like to bring down the Captain, Captain Marvel movie reference where she was like, this whole time I've been fighting with one hand tied behind my back. Now you're about to see how I can do with both hands. And, of course, she wiped out half of Thanos' army and almost wiped out Thanos had he not used the Power Stone. But anyway, I digress. So, um, going into that. So, if we repeat what Rabbi Mayer said earlier in our um, tractate of... Uh, the Kohelet Rabbah, Slika, earlier in our Midrash from the Kohelet Rabbah, he said, when a person is born into this world, his hands are clenched as if he is declaring that the entire world belongs to him. This is fascinating and alarming because immediately at birth, not only does the Yetzirah cause a newborn to forget the entire Torah, but it prevents the newborn or it prevails upon the newborn to clench its fists, indicating that it will keep to itself all that it acquires in this lifetime. And then you follow out the Kohela Rabbah and you die with your hands open because you didn't acquire anything. So it's false. So now let's go back to the Torah where it says, do not close your hand against your destitute brother. As you did when you emerged into this world at birth. For by doing so, 
you strengthen the hold, pun intended, of the Yetzirah and its forces on your hands and whatever they produce. And you should not be inviting people over for Arab Shabbat at that point. And you've, you're breaking Shabbat at that point because you're not willing to give. So, therefore, Hashem commands you, be sure to open your hand to him. Because literally when you give to the poor, when you give Zadaka, when you give your tithe, yes, you're going to give to a medium, like you're going to give to the shul, or you're going to give to the poor person, or you're going to give to the person in need. But when you do that, you're giving to Hashem. This is why Yeshua was telling us, hey, even if you give a cup of water to someone who's thirsty, you've done that to me. Because to the least of these, you've done it to me. When you visit someone in jail... When you clothe the naked, you've done that to me. And remember who is Mashiach Yeshua? Oh yeah, he's Hashem, because he's the Shekinah, and the Shekinah is Hashem. And, you know, yeah, just follow that all the way up. So then it says, be sure to open your hand to him. Give Zadaka routinely to the poor. Thus, you will break the Yetzirah's hold on your hands and on your money. So all these opportunities that we're being offered uh, at Sar Shalom and at Lapid to give, 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 supporting our teachers, supporting our Torah scholars, supporting, you know, all of our families in need at shul, visiting the sick and uh, just giving drink to people who are thirsty, you know, uh, sharing Torah with those who don't understand and taking our time, being patient with them. Because we do that, we break the, the control of the Yetzirah on our lives. So I just really wanted to share that because we need to be a place of we are not afraid, scared or irritated to talk about Zadaka, to talk about tithe. This is something we do. A hundred percent of Sar Shalom, of Lapid, of Avengers, of Shuva heroes, like we all need to give 10 percent. And as much Zadaka as we can possibly do, let's do it. Because when we do, we will bring Mashiach. So, Ve'ata Moshel Bekov. And you, Adonai, you, Adonai, reign over everything. Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai. Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam, Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet, Vekaye Olam Natabetokeinu, Baruch Ata Adonai, Noten HaTorah, Amen. And following this shortly will be the two comments about uh, Zippor Aish, that she... Uh, talks about with regards to rabbi and some other commentary on my previous podcast all right everyone have a blessed first week of elul and a shavuot tov and shalom so i'm listening to the baraka part of your ray a and you're talking about the abraham becoming the baraka and i was just remembering what yeshua said to the um uh, to the religious leaders when they said we are sons of Abraham and Yeshua said if you were sons of Abraham do the works of Abraham so when you combine that with Abraham was the Baracha what does that mean for us? Your soul can't even begin to start thriving 
until after you've started eating rabbinically kosher. So it goes even beyond what you were just talking about. Um, you can't even begin to understand spiritual truths until you start eating rabbinically kosher. So I'm listening to your uh, Ray GT and you're talking about the rabbi thing. And um, I have to just say that when I was really studying on that particular portion several years ago, I just really felt like Holy Spirit was telling me that don't call someone rabbi to the point of actually putting them on a pedestal and worshiping them. Um, and that's just right in line with what you're basically saying there about, you know, yes, they're to be venerated, but they are not to be worshipped. <laughs> 